So we're starting a new series today. Let me start with a question before I even get into the series. What does it mean to live out your faith? Like, what are we talking about when we call people to live out their faith? Is that a statement about not being ashamed of the gospel? Is it a call to fight for biblical values in the public sector? Is it a, is it a life, uh, you know, living life defined by the moral values that are outlined in scripture? Is it talking about choosing to have your faith reflected in all areas of your life from the radio station you tune into to the people you vote for? Is it referring to serving the lost and hurting and broken in our community? Is it seeking to be truly, you know, be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ in all we do? What does it mean to live out your faith? I think in a sense, the answer is, Yes, to a lot of these things, like, you know, in, in some form. Uh, it's referring to, to all of those things. And, and there are so many divergent viewpoints on what it means for Christians to choose to live out their faith. But if there are one thing followers of Jesus have done accurately, like since the beginning and consistently since the beginning, is overcomplicate what God plans to make simple what he plans to make plain to us. And what we see God doing over and over and over again for us is pointing us back to the heart of what matters most to him. He does this in Exodus when he gives the Israelites the 10 commandments. Uh, Jesus does this in the New Testament when he's asked what is the greatest commandment and he claims all the law, all the prophets, all of scripture hinges on loving God with all we are and loving our neighbor as ourselves. And yet from the foundation of humanity until today, we have still managed to live out our faith in a way that makes it far more complicated than God meant for it to be. And no one has a greater reputation for this in scripture then the group of people known as, the religious group known as the Pharisees. We're gonna get to a story about a Pharisee today, a religious leader, but before we do, I wanna introduce you to our four-week journey. The title of this series is Love, Walk, Do. Love, Walk, Do. And it's based on a scripture in Micah chapter six, verse eight, uh, in the Old Testament. So I wanna invite you to turn there. Turn to Micah chapter six. Uh, if you're using one of our Bibles, we'll be on page 554. If you didn't bring a Bible, you can raise your hand. The ushers would love to bring you one and you can follow along. If you don't own one, uh, it's our gift to you. Please, please grab one. Uh, Micah chapter six. This is one of those instances in the Old Testament where God is doing just that. He's simplifying things. He's, he's saying it plainly to us. He's basically saying to us in Micah six, just do this. Like, I just, I want you to just do this. So while you're turning there, uh, let me ask you a question. Who's ever read through the Bible all the way? Like all the way through, every page. Yeah, if you've done that, give yourself a little pat on the back. You, you know, for those who went on that amazing journey through scripture, how many of you can say, and I know somebody will raise their hand because you're smart, Alex, but how many of you can say Leviticus is your favorite book? Right, like if you ever read through the Bible, you run into the law. Lots of law. Lots of sacrificial Lost so many details. And more than once, as I've gone through the Bible over the years, I have found myself thanking God that I was born now and not then in that place in that time because I would not have stood a chance of being a good Israelite. It just would not have gone well for me. But the sacrificial system was put in place by God as a way of showing Israel what holiness what looked like, what, what kind of holiness would be required from us. Listen, as if we insist on doing it ourselves. What does holiness look like if we insist on doing it ourselves? And I gotta tell you, yowza, it's for real. It's for real. By the time we get to the book of Micah, near the end of the Old Testament, it's clear Israel's in a lot of trouble if they have to do it themselves. 
So Micah 5 starts with a prophecy that you probably know about Jesus and about his birth. We read it at Christmas all the time about how the Messiah was coming and how through the Messiah, the remnant of Israel would be purified. In other words, hold on, help is coming and you need it, okay? The only problem is they don't know they need it. So in Micah chapter six, it reads a whole lot like a court scene uh, where Israel is making a case for their own righteousness on their own terms and, and with God addressing just how far short they've actually fallen. And, and as we get ready to read this, I need to make a statement uh, that's from my heart, okay? I think the church in 2023 has lost her way a bit. And I'm not talking ransom church, the church, okay? I think Christians in 2023, we've lost our way a bit. I think in our desire to hold on to the things of God in a changing world, we become so focused on our own righteousness and doing all the things we can to protect the church from the world that we forget it's the world Jesus came to save. I think we've busied ourselves protecting God's standards when he never asked us for and does not need our protection. And in the process for fighting what we feel are the things of God, so many of have lost the heart of God. We've forgotten about the heart of God that breaks for the loss. And I think we are in too many ways like those found in Micah chapter six. I think this is gonna be incredibly relevant. So let's jump in together and set the foundation for our series. Micah six, starting with verse one. Listen to what the Lord is saying. Stand up and state your case against me. Let the mountains and hills be called to witness your complaints. And now, O mountains, listen to the Lord's complaint. He has a case against his people. He will bring charges against Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? What have I done to make you tired of me? Answer me. For I brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from slavery. I sent Moses, Aaron, and Miriam to help you. Now listen, God is calling Israel out here, but he's doing so in love because while he clearly has a complaint against them, he still calls them my people. His frustration is a byproduct of his extreme love for them. And we know exactly what that feels like, don't we? As we often get angry at those that we love the most who for some reason are just missing it. He goes on to talk about how he delivered them from slavery and he did, quote, everything I could to teach you about my faithfulness. He's curious why following him seems like such a burden to them, why they're sick of him. And they're quick to tell him what feels overwhelming. Verse six, they say, what, what can we bring to the Lord? Should we bring him burnt offerings? Should we bow before God most high with offerings of yearling calves? Should we offer him thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Should we sacrifice our firstborn children to pay for our sins? Uh, in other words, their complaint is this. We're following all the rules, God, like what could you possibly want from us? Why would you ever be upset with us who are following all the rules? And in a sense, they sort of were following the rules fairly well. But here's the deal when it comes to, to God. The heart matters. See, it doesn't matter how well you know what the Bible says if you don't understand why you're doing it. For God, it's always about the why before the what. Micah's generation transforms God's covenant into a contract. To them, it was just all about what's the cost of earning God's favor? What do I have to do? What box do I have to check to earn God's favor? They were doing it and they were trying to do all the right things to earn that favor. And so they were thinking, man, we're doing the things. What else do you need? But God is insulted both by their questions and by their hearts. This generation thought God delighted in all their sacrifices 
And what that's about to be reve- what's about to be revealed to them actually shocks them. And, and I wonder if it wouldn't shock our churches today. This was God's response in verse eight. No, oh people, the Lord has told you what is good. And this is what he requires of you. To do what is right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. This is what God requires of his followers. Do what is right, that's justice. Love mercy, walk humbly with God. This is one of those scriptural moments of simplification where God's just boiling things down and he's essentially saying, listen, if you're not getting this right, you're missing the whole point. So we're gonna go through this this verse together over the next few weeks. Today, we're gonna start in the middle with mercy. And here's why. Because I think mercy is what's missing most in the church today. Listen, when we think about mercy and when we offer people mercy in the church today, we're often accused of losing our way, of compromising, of taking on a liberal agenda, which interestingly enough is the thing Jesus was most accused of as well. See, he, wasn't, he was accused often of being a partier, a friend of sinners, a drunk. You know what he was never accused of? Being a Pharisee. He was never mistaken for a Pharisee. He was only mistaken as a sinner by the Pharisees. But listen, if mercy doesn't precede justice, we're in big trouble. Justice without mercy is a dangerous thing. So let's define our terms for today. What is mercy? Mercy is what happens when you pardon someone, when you don't give them what they actually deserve. And we're called by God to actually love when this happens. So to love mercy is to love when people don't get what they deserve. And I'm not talking about like in, you know, allowing injustice and letting criminals walk. I'm not talking about that at all. Justice is a huge part of this passage. And we're going to look at that later in the series. I'm talking about getting to a point in your life and in your faith where what you want most for people is grace. Where where what you want to offer people first is mercy. And can I be honest, that's not possible on our own strength. We are driven in this life by this social sense of righteousness. Like we've made faith about being made right before God, about being in right standing before our maker, but we've misconstrued with what righteousness actually looks like. Where now in our minds, righteousness is determined by comparisons. Like I'm not perfect, but am I better than those around me? So we get to the point where we view our righteousness in comparison to others. Am I in better shape than that guy? Am I I doing better than her? And it takes a ton, a ton of energy to prop up that kind of thinking. But we do it all the time. And we actually get to the point where we look around at those who in our minds are doing worse than us. And where as believers, we can actually get to the point where we believe that it's reasonable God would love someone like me. So let me ask you an incredibly crucial question. Do you think it makes sense that God would love you? And while you're thinking about that question and wrestling with it, I want to take you into a story. So turn to Luke chapter 7, if you will. Luke chapter 7, page 619, uh, if you're flipping over in one of our Bibles. And to give you a bit of background for this story, Jesus is invited to a dinner party at a Pharisee's house. Okay. Now, almost any time Jesus is approached this way, it's not because the religious leader thinks Jesus is a great guy. Okay? It's not because he's sincere about learning more from Jesus. It almost always has to do with the ulterior motive of trapping Jesus. 
Now, Pharisees were only one kind of religious group at the time, but they were the group that stressed a very strict adherence to the Old Testament law of Moses, or at least to their interpretation of the Old Testament law of Moses. And so uh, Jesus has already clashed with the Pharisees several times, particularly around how they interpreted the law. So this invitation should be met with some skepticism, okay? And as you read all of Luke 7, what you see over and over and over again is Jesus violating social taboos in order to reach lost people. He broke down social barriers, economic barriers, religious barriers. And in this section we're gonna read, he even breaks down perceived moral barriers because he's willing to help a woman regardless of her past reputation. So let's jump in, uh, Luke 7, starting with verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him, so Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. When a certain immoral woman from that city heard he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. Now, let me give you context for this crazy picture that we just painted here. Uh, Jesus is invited into the home of this Pharisee, but even though he's a special guest, he's not treated that way, okay? Now, it, it wasn't unusual when you were hosting a guest to share that information with people in the vicinity and to leave your door sort of open, like an open door policy so that people could come and they could kind of watch you have dinner with this dignitary or whoever, and they could kind of listen in on the dinner conversation. So that explains how the woman had access to this home. And yet she would have known she wasn't welcome. She was outside of, of, you know, she was immoral, and it would have taken courage to do what she did. This woman learns that Jesus is at the Pharisee's home, and she sees an opportunity she can't pass up. This passage describes her as an immoral woman. Literally, she's a quote, notorious sinner. A lot of people think she was a prostitute, and though we don't know if that's what she was for sure, everyone knew her reputation, and her reputation wasn't good. In fact, she knew her own reputation. She knew uh, what people thought about her, but she also knew the reputation of Jesus as a forgiver of sins, and she knew she needed that. Somehow, she, she, she just like needed him, and so she's so desperate for his mercy, that she crashes the party, throws herself at Jesus' feet, and anoints his nasty sandal wearing in the desert where there's no indoor plumbing and lots of camels' feet with this expensive jar of perfume. Guess how she paid for that? As well as with her tears. And then she dried them with her hair. Ladies, can you imagine wiping anyone's feet with your hair? Not to mention it was a modest to take down your hair. And that just added to the confirmation of her reputation. But she didn't care about any of that. She began to wipe his feet dry, at which point she starts kissing the feet of Jesus. Feet, y'all. Feet. Cleaning feet was a job of a slave. It was the lowest of low tests. But she didn't care. All she cares about is honoring him. But before we can even focus on what the woman is doing, the story returns to the Pharisee. His name happens to be Simon, verse 39. When the Pharisee had invited, uh, who had invited him saw this, saw how he treated the woman, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. Simon's first emotion is not mercy. Rather, 
you know, he's not moved by Jesus' love toward her or her love toward Jesus. He's angry and offended by, her, by Jesus' behavior. He doesn't care about her at all. He's not moved by her. He wants nothing to do with a sinful woman. And in his mind, Jesus is allowing her to do this for him. And that's actually evidence that Jesus cannot be from God. He cannot be a prophet. Because listen, if Jesus were actually from God, he would not show a sinner like her mercy. That's who they thought God was. Isn't it amazing how the greatest doubts surrounding Jesus had to do with him showing too much grace? R.C. Sproul uh, said the Pharisees embraced the idea of salvation by segregation. Keep a safe distance from anyone who was a sinner. And that was everyone. I love the next verse, verse 40. Then Jesus answered his thoughts. Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. Jesus answered his what? His thoughts. He didn't even say what he thought out loud. He just thought of this about this woman and Jesus responds to what he thought. And as often the case with Jesus, he shares a parable or a story. Verse 41, then Jesus told him this story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to the other, but neither of them could repay him. So he kindly forgave them both canceling their debts. So let's put the amounts in perspective. One had like a two-month debt. One had a two-year debt. Obviously, it's 10 times greater than the first, but don't miss the other significant reality. Neither can repay their debt. Both are forgiven. Jesus finishes the story. He asks this question, verse 42. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? And Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. Here's what Simon acknowledged, unwillingly, but here's what he acknowledged. Greater debt, greater appreciation. Greater debt, greater appreciation. Then Jesus drops this bombshell on the entire conversation. And as with all Jesus' parables, the truth in the story is simple. It's the application that blows up your life, okay? Verse 44. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon. So he's looking at her. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust off my feet, but she's washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she anointed my feet with rare perfume. The things Jesus mentions here are customary greetings. These aren't for dignitaries. This isn't going above and beyond for a special guest. Simon had failed to offer Jesus even customary hospitality. Listen, because he didn't really value the presence of Jesus in his life. Jesus is showing us two very different responses to himself based on two very different attitudes about sin and grace. Why was the woman's response over the top? Where did she find the courage to do what she did? Because she understood the weight of her sin. And so she understood the weight of God's mercy. She understands what she's been forgiven. In verse 47, he says, I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only little love. 
This is the mind-blowing truth we have to reconcile. The woman shows so much love for Jesus in this story because she's aware of just how great God's mercy is. But when we lack, when we lack the awareness about the reality of God's mercy and just how much mercy he's offered to us, then we will lack the proper understanding of mercy that is needed in order for us to offer mercy to others. Let's say it this way. The more you are aware of God's mercy for you, the more you are capable of offering mercy to others. And if that statement didn't just blow up your life, you're not listening. Let me put this in its proper perspective. I asked you a question earlier. Very straightforward question. Do you think it makes sense that God would love you? The answer to that question is no. Absolutely no not. He is the God of the universe. I am nothing. In fact, we're worse than nothing because we were made to be something and then we rejected him. There's no reason he should even acknowledge humanity, much less any reason that he should actually love us. And I want you to notice, I'm not asking you, do you believe God loves you? Okay? If you grew up in church, you know God loves you, and you know not only that, but that you know there's nothing you can do to cause him to not love you. What I'm asking is, do you believe you deserve that? And what you may be missing is how big a deal it is that he actually loves you. The psalmist expresses it this way in Psalm 8. He says, when I look at the night sky, I see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars you set in place. What are mere mortals that you should think about them? human beings that you should care about them. There's no reason God should love you and me. But when we fail to grasp the weight of our sins against God and we fail to recognize just how much we need to be forgiven and just how lost we are without him, we become Simon. Simon had the curse of thinking he was more righteous than the woman. She didn't struggle with that curse. She knew who she was. See, the degree to which you can offer love and mercy is directly related to the degree you have recognized your need for mercy and the degree to which you've received his love and mercy. And so if you think you need just a little bit of God's mercy, but you're actually better than average, you're not ever gonna feel the deep love of God. And you're not ever gonna offer mercy because you're not living in mercy. If you come here assuming, well, God should probably love me. Somehow I've earned my righteousness. I'm a pretty good person. Guess what? You're gonna become unemotional, disconnected in your faith. You're gonna, you're gonna never feel like worshiping. You're definitely not gonna sign up to be on a serving team because that would be inconvenient to attend one and, stay, and serve one. You won't have a heart that breaks for those who are lost. I mean, I said this last week. Some of us have been saved long enough. We don't remember what it was like to be lost. We received God's mercy long enough ago that we've forgotten just how desperately we need his mercy in our lives. When we get a sense of God's holiness and our brokenness, only then will we realize how much we need his mercy. Only then will we be thankful when we receive his mercy and only then can we then give that gift to others. Listen, think of it this way. It's really easy to feel tall as an adult when you're standing in a preschool classroom but they're not, the, they're not the definition of what tall is. We live in a society, in a world populated with people who are just really far from God right now. You don't have to be a spiritual giant to feel really tall right now compared to them, but the world isn't a comparison and they're not the comparison anyway, Jesus is. How desperately do we need the cross? 
How desperately do we need Jesus' blood? Hebrews 9 tells us without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And without recognition of how much mercy we've received, there's no way we can offer mercy to others. And if you want to know, do I understand this in my life? Ask yourself this question. Do you love when others receive mercy? Particularly those who don't look like they deserve it. Is your idea of faith right now about preserving the standards of faith or is all, is all about, uh, pro, you know, are you trying to protect God from the very people he came to reach? Do you understand the only time Jesus got angry at people in scripture is with religious leaders and their failure to show mercy to those who needed it? They worried about every rule, but they neglected the important stuff like justice and mercy and faith. They put spiritual burdens on other people's when Jesus claimed his yoke is easy and his burden is light and he offers to carry people's burdens with them. They clean the outside of their lives so they look all good on the outside, but inside they're dead and full of hypocrisy and they lack the heart of God. They are not aware of their need for the great physician. They think they're healthy, but they're dying on the inside. They hold on to external righteousness based on comparison and they distance themselves from the lost in an effort to be faithful because they don't want to have anything to do with that. And Jesus says to them, Sinners will get to heaven before you because they know they need mercy, but you've forgotten. You've hidden your entire life behind a facade of self-righteousness and you're living with a Simon mindset. It is not reasonable that God would love you and me, but it is so beautiful. And when you become aware of what God's mercy has done for you, you will become a lover of mercy and you will become a giver of mercy. You won't want anyone to get what they deserve. You'll want everyone to experience the mercy you live in every single day. Never excusing or justifying sin, but always fighting for those lost in it and always believing in Jesus' power to change hearts and lives. Maybe you're here and you're realizing just how much you need his mercy. Maybe for you, it, it needs to start with surrender right here, right now. Maybe for you, it's time to confess and to throw yourself at the feet of Jesus and actually let your Savior save you. And if that's you, I'm gonna ask you right now to stand where you are and I wanna lead you in a prayer. Father, I need you. I need your son, Jesus. I need your grace and I need your mercy. God, I, I cannot get what I deserve. I need your mercy and I believe in your son, Jesus. I put my faith in your son, Jesus, to forgive me of my sins and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. In Jesus' name, amen. If you just prayed that prayer, I want to have you fill out the card in the seat in front of you, drop it in the bucket on the way out. We need to walk with you. We're so excited you're experiencing God's mercy today. And now let me speak to the rest of us real quick. Ransom Church, we're a family, we're a body. We're in this together. Let's together commit to loving mercy. As a church, if we're gonna be accused of anything by the, the onlooking outside world, my prayer is that like Jesus, we would be accused by the Pharisees of being friends of sinners in all we do and of offering mercy 
after mercy after mercy and that we would never be mistaken for Pharisees ourselves. Father, give us the courage to love mercy because we love you. I pray this in your name. Amen.